If you're watching live, good morning, or however you might be listening, thank you for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this sermon series on finding our way back to God every day. And today, as we look at the gloriousness of God, we pray that we would be drawn into you so that we would recognize how great and powerful and awesome and holy you are and concern ourselves less and less with what others think of us. Please help us to see, to hear, to know and to understand what it is that you want to say to each and every one of us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Confessions of a people pleaser. You probably know someone who goes out of their way to make others happy. You might even be one of those people yourselves. You can look at the scriptures and say, well, isn't that kind of what God wants us to do? To put others in front of ourselves? But two people can do the exact same thing for very different reasons. One person can help you move because he genuinely wants to help you and be a good friend and make sure you get settled into your new place. The other person helps you move because they think, oh man, if I don't, they're not going to like me, but I'm just too busy and I don't know what to do and go about the whole thing in bitterness or resentment. I want to take a look at seven types of people pleasers. Maybe they'll resonate with you. Maybe they'll hit closer to home than you'd like. Maybe it won't matter to you at all. And it might be just like water off a duck's back. But let's take a look. I'm susceptible to peer pressure. My friends have expensive hobbies and I think to myself, I'm just saving up for vacation with my wife. I don't have time to do this. But if I don't, then I'm going to be left out. Maybe there's a party going on with your friends or your classmates from school and you know there's going to be drugs and alcohol at that party and you think, but if I don't go, I'm going to totally miss out on Monday morning. Maybe in your office there's a big fantasy football draft and you can't stand football and you don't care how many catches a wide receiver makes, but that's what everybody talks about throughout the week. Maybe you avoid people who don't like you. You're in a grocery store and you see someone who you know without a doubt is not a big fan of yours and suddenly the ingredients on the back of that Oreo box look so much more interesting than it did just seconds ago. And maybe you can get away with it in a grocery store. But how do you play the foyer shuffle here at church? Are you afraid of sharing the gospel? You really like fill in the blank. Your sister-in-law, your coworker, your neighbor, your close friend, but you're afraid that as soon as you share the gospel with them, they're going to completely write you off as one of those religious nuts and you're going to lose one of your close friends. You feel guilty saying no. Anytime somebody asks you to move, you just feel compelled that you have to do that. You don't know how many three-year-old birthday parties you get invited to as a single before you say, I just don't want to go anymore. Or that same couple keeps inviting you out for dinner and you think, I don't want to. You don't know how to share your own thoughts and feelings. Sometimes being a people pleaser means that you are a world-class listener. Because when it comes to politics or religion or how to parent somebody else, you completely disagree with what the other person has to say. But you won't share your own thoughts and feelings because you really want them to like you. Maybe you need a lot of validation. Doesn't your friend realize how much work it took to drop off that meal? You spent a whole afternoon at your friend's house building a deck or watching your girlfriend's little kid. Can't they at least invite you over for supper or do something to say thanks? And really it all boils down to this. I go to great lengths 
to not upset others. Well, there's many other examples. This is kind of the bottom line, isn't it? People pleasers will go to great lengths not to lose a relationship. Small lies to be on the right side of the discussion. Put away your values for a little bit just so you can keep hanging out with that friend. Holding back your thoughts and your opinions completely to yourself. How does one overcome this destructive pattern? I'm not looking for a show of hands, but do any of those ideas resonate with you? I know they certainly resonate with me. Now, just so we're clear, I'm not saying to never help a friend who needs help when you don't feel like it, or to always share your thoughts and feelings. God has given us wisdom and discernment for a reason. But do you find yourself living a pattern in which you get hurt so that somebody else might feel as though they have a friend? We're currently in a sermon series called Finding Your Way Back to God Every Day and seeing how the greatness and the goodness and the gloriousness and the graciousness of God is so much better than what the world has to offer. These attributes of God probably aren't new to you, but we need to be constantly reminded how they impact us every single day. We started off with God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Last week, we looked at God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. And this week, we're going to look at God is glorious, so I don't have to fear what others think. Tim Chester writes about these ideas in his book, You Can Change, and he says, one common reason why we sin is that we crave the approval of people or we fear their rejection. We need the acceptance of others, and so we're controlled by them. For those of us in this room who are recovering people pleasers, what can we do to keep our eyes focused on God, to fear him and his gloriousness rather than fear those around us? Unfortunately, there's no magic pill for this to take place. And I had a few different passages of scripture that I was looking at and I thought about the idea of walking through a journey with one biblical character. And so we're going to look at the first few chapters of the book of Exodus and see the beginning of Moses' life and what happens in those upcoming chapters and how he overcomes this fear himself. If you have your Bibles with you, you're certainly more than welcome to follow along in the book of Exodus. Uh, The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And whether you flip there in your hard copy or scroll there on your soft copy, that's where we'll be today. A little bit of context as you open to the book of Exodus. The Israelites, also called the Hebrews, are currently living in the land of Egypt. At the end of Genesis, Jacob and Joseph bring their family to Egypt, about 75 people in total. By the time that Exodus begins, we don't know exactly how many years have passed, but the Israelites have multiplied significantly and there are thousands of them. And this upsets Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, He has chosen to make the Israelites his slaves and put impossibly heavy burdens on them. However, the more the Hebrews are oppressed, the more they just start multiplying like rabbits. So the king decides to show how ruthless he really is. He pulls the Israelite midwives together and says, when you see a Hebrew woman giving birth, if she has a son, you are to kill him. But if she has a daughter, you might let her live. In chapter one, verse 17, we read this, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let their male children live. And the stage has been set in that opening chapter. Will the Israelites fear Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, or will they fear the God whom they love and worship and has promised to one day give them a land of their own? Let's take that a step further. At this point, the Israelites have no temple to worship in. 
At this point, the flood that happened hundreds of years ago is just an idea. At this point, there's only stories about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. At this point, they are in Egypt and a whole lot of good that did. The only thing they know in life is Egyptian slavery and yet they choose to fear God. And it's in this context that a baby named Moses is born. For the first three, year, uh, three uh, months of his life, Moses is hidden at home. But eventually his mom just can't do that anymore. And so she puts him in a basket by the reeds where they know that Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe. Not only does this plan work, but Pharaoh's daughter asks Moses' very mom to nurse him until he is fully weaned and then bring him back to the palace. If your knowledge of Exodus comes from classic movies like the Ten Commandments or a little bit more recently, The Prince of Egypt, as well made as both of those movies are, there's scenes in both of them where Moses finds out that he's actually an Israelite. But that's not the case. In chapter 2, verse 11, we read, One day Moses had grown up. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So you know what Moses does? He looks both ways, makes sure nobody's listening, and bam! Not only does he strike the Egyptian, but he kills him completely. The very next day, he's walking around doing the same thing, and this time he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he goes in between them to stop the dispute. However, rather than being grateful, they look at him with disgust and say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? And even without social media, the, the word goes through the fire fast. And quickly, Pharaoh finds out what took place. And he says, I'm going to kill Moses. The Egyptians are mad. The Israelites are frustrated. And so Moses runs away. I know this message is about overcoming fear, but I think we can give him a little bit of a pass here. We allowed the Jews to run out of Germany a few years ago. We didn't critique the Syrians who ran out when they were known that they were going to die. Pharaoh is the world's most strongest, most powerful man, and he decides to kill Moses, and so Moses bolts. He flees to the land of Midian where he meets a nice woman. He settles down. He has a family. And between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, 40 years go by. Not 40 days, not even 40 months. 40 years. Until one day, which probably began like any other, Moses was caring for his flocks when he sees a burning bush and he stops in his tracks. Drawing closer to this phenomenon. A voice cries out from the bush, do not come near, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And these powerful words from chapter three, verse six, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Verses three and seven. God continues, I have surely seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them from Egypt and to bring them to the land I have promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses, this is how I'm going to do it. I am sending you to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Let's pause for a moment. And think about what Moses has just seen. For 40 years, he is living in the land of Midian. 
He's met a wife. He's raised up some kids. He has flocks of his own. He's probably walking in that very same pasture that he has fed his flocks on literally hundreds of times before. And suddenly one day he sees a burning bush. And drawing closer, a voice speaks out to him. When it says that he covers his face, it almost certainly means that he lied prostrate down before receiving the commission to go and set his people free. In scripture, when we read the word glory, it means there is a heaviness, a weightiness, a sense of awe that is taking place. For me, I sense that glory when I go to the mountains, hopefully once a year, and I see these incredible pieces of nature. And for me, that shows the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. For some of you, it might be listening to a beautiful piece of music. For some of you, it might be taking your camera and taking pictures together, or having deep conversations with friends, hearing a great prayer, or listening to a powerful message. In front of Moses, his very eyes, there is a weight, a heaviness, a sense of awe in what is taking place. So how does Moses respond? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I love this, verse 13. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell him? I love that response to verse 13. You know, God, I hear you. You're burning a bush and there's a voice coming from it. You've spoken to me. You've given me this great commission. Suppose I listen. Suppose what? Moses, God is glorious. So you don't have to fear others. But how often do we buy into that very same lie that Moses is? We're basking in the God of creation. We're sitting in a main auditorium hearing a powerful message. We're spending a great conversation with our closest friends and then you hear the Holy Spirit speaking into your life. Invite your friend to Alpha. It's time that you have that difficult conversation with your spouse. When are you going to make things right with your neighbor? It's time for a new great group of friends. You have to learn to say no. And in the midst of that powerful God moment, you just go, Yep, not interested. God is glorious. So we don't have to fear others. And God isn't about to let Moses off the hook. He is a Hebrew who was raised in Pharaoh's palace, schooled in the ways of Egyptian, has access to the king, and God says, Moses, you have a job to do. In response to Moses' question of, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And then God doubles down on his expectation of Moses and gives him a sign. Throw your staff on the ground. It will become a snake. See that your hand is clean. Put it in your pocket. It's leprous. Put it back in your pocket. Now it's not. If that still isn't enough, take water from the Nile, throw it on the ground, and it will become blood. Equipped with this knowledge of God and the signs of God, Moses and his brother Aaron eventually get into Pharaoh's palace and they say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let our people go. Pharaoh's response, <laughs> Moses, are you serious? 
The people of Israel, all these Hebrews have become my slaves. Egyptians don't need to work because God's people are doing all the work for me. My entire workforce. Where would I get all this free labor from in the future? And who is your God that I should fear him? And then to make matters worse, Moses and Aaron leave. And Pharaoh calls his foreman and his slave drivers together. And he says to them, the Israelites have it too easy. Instead of just making their quota as they were before, make them make their own bricks and still have to perform that quota. The Israelites are furious. At the end of chapter five, we read the foreman's, the Israelite foreman talking to Moses. May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And now a symmetry takes place. 40 years earlier, a much younger prince of Egypt has upset the Pharaoh and been despised by his Hebrew brothers, and he bolts. But now, 40 years later, history is repeating itself. To quote the great Yogi Berra, it's like deja vu all over again. But Moses has changed. Here he stands, 80 years of age, is despised by Pharaoh, despised by the Hebrews, and he has a choice to make. He can once again run away, or he can trust that God is glorious. And so he does not have to fear others. My friends, this is absolutely 100% a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. There's no magical pill to swallow. It's finding our way back to God every single day. In the very next verse, Moses does turn back to God and ask him why all this is happening. And I'm paraphrasing here. God looks at Moses and says, so the Egyptians might see my glory. God makes the river turn to blood, the entire land swarm with frogs, the dust turn to gnats, and Pharaoh still refuses to let the people go. So God makes houses full of flies, the animals of Egypt get sick and die, people get painful sores, and still Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So God makes hail fall from the sky, locusts cover the ground, darkness spread over the land, and Pharaoh still refuses to let God's people go. My favorite kid's Bible is written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and I love how she summarizes the first nine plagues. It seemed the whole world, creation and everything was coming undone, falling back into darkness and emptiness and nothingness. What will it take for God's people to experience freedom? Nothing less than the death of a firstborn son. God spoke to Moses and gave him directions to establish something called the Passover. The Israelites were to take a perfect, holy, spotless lamb, sacrifice it, take its blood, and put it on their door frames. If the Israelites choose to do this and to be faithful to what God is calling them to do, an angel of death will pass over the homes of the Israelites and will attack the homes of the Egyptians. That night there was great wailing throughout all of Egypt for the angel of death killed the firstborn son in every single Egyptian household. For the Israelites, it was a sense of awe, a weight, 
heaviness in what took place. God has shown his glory. The Israelites receive their freedom, but it also comes at an incredible cost to the Egyptians. For Pharaoh, enough's enough. In the middle of the night, he calls, his Mo- he calls Moses and his brother Aaron, and he says, take your people, leave. The Egyptians too have had enough and urge the people, get out of the country, take our stuff, just get out of here. We don't want to deal with this anymore. Leave. So Moses gathers the Israelites, more than one million of them, and they leave behind the nation of Egypt to go walking across the desert. I love this next part. God's relationship with Moses has a bit of a a rocky start in chapter three. Moses hasn't quite grappled with this idea of fear of God versus fear of man, but by the time we reach Exodus chapter 14, they almost sound like friends. Let me read this to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And everything happened exactly as God said. Word came back to Pharaoh that the Hebrews were wandering around lost in the desert when it struck him. What have I done? I've just let my entire workforce go. Lucky for me, they're so dumb that they got lost in the desert and have trapped themselves between the great sea and me. Army, gather together all the chariots and let us pursue the Israelites to the Red Sea. We have them trapped. Picking up in verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified. And they cried to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out to Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptian. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They prayed for freedom and God rescued them. They asked for a leader. God brought Moses. They wanted their enemies defeated and it's about to happen. They want the benefits of God without any relationship or fear of God. And it sounds a little bit like us. We believe God saved us with the death of the firstborn of his son, but thank you very much, God. We will take it from here. I can handle the peer pressure I'm facing at work or school. I'm not avoiding that person in the grocery store. I just don't need the milk that I came for. I'll share the gospel when I'm good and ready to share the gospel. I don't need your help. But we do need God's help. Every single day. And because God is glorious, we don't have to fear others. Look at Moses' answer to the Israelites. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then something incredible happens. The pillar of smoke that was leading the Israelites throughout the desert moves from being in front of them to being behind them. 
when the Egyptians squished the Israelites between themselves and the great sea. They can't see them, and nor can the Israelites see the Egyptians. And then Moses stretches his staff over top of the lake, and all night God sends a great wind. And so the morning when they wake up, there is a wall of water on one side, a wall of water on another side, and dry ground for the Israelites to walk through. The Israelites, 600,000 men, along with all the women and children and flocks with them, walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. When the last person put their foot down, Moses once again puts out his staff and the waters come crashing down, killing all the Egyptians. And check out the last verse of chapter 14. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. My friends, do you know what the Israelites did once they landed on the other side of the lake? They immediately worshipped. This is chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Again in verse 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. To capture his glory and remind ourselves over and over and over again how awesome and how powerful God truly is. The Israelites witness the glory of the Lord. Their prayers for freedom have been answered. They witness God plaguing the people of Egypt. They walked across the bottom, the bottom of the sea. They escaped slavery. They know that they can worship the glory of God and not fear that of man. So how can we capture God's glory in our own lives? I think there's a few principles that we can pick out from today's passage. And the first is this, embrace the journey. There were a number of different passages I was debating preaching on this morning, but there was something about the journey that drew me in. We live in this on-demand society. It used to be a big deal just to drive to McDonald's and pick up a quick burger. Now you don't even need to do that. You can just call Skip the Dishes and they'll bring the burger right to you. My kids, six, five, and two, don't even really know what commercials are. If a commercial shows up, they get all frustrated and wonder what's going on. Netflix and YouTube and Disney Plus and streaming services are great. But it's not real life. Real life is a journey. There are going to be ups and downs just like Moses had and just like the people of Israel had. In fact, as Moses leads the people through the desert, he reminds them again in Exodus and in Leviticus, and in Numbers, and numerous times in Deuteronomy, fear the Lord. Do not worry about all these nations around you. Keep your eyes focused on the glory of the Lord. And if we expect today's sermon to be some sort of magic pill that after today, I'm not going to fear other people anymore. I'm no longer going to be a people pleaser. That's not realistic. But if we acknowledge that today is one step, maybe a big step in the right direction, that some days are going to be better than others, there's going to be drawbacks, but ultimately we are going to move up and to the right. Then we can embrace the journey with much more realistic expectations. The second idea is this, 
identify our root fears. One of the joys at looking at large passages of scripture is that you begin to see themes start to emerge. In chapter two, we see Moses learn that Pharaoh wanted to kill him and the Israelites despised him, so he ran away. In chapters three and four, when God is calling Moses to rescue his people, what were two of his excuses? God, God, the Pharaoh wants to kill me. The Israelites despise me. But there's growth this time. He doesn't run away. He starts to ask questions. At the end of chapter five, the same thing happens a third time. Pharaoh hates me. The Israelites despise me but now I fear the Lord. And we see great growth. So what was Moses' root fear? I'm just taking a guess here, but maybe that he didn't belong. I don't fit in with the Egyptians. I don't fit in with the Israelites. I'm a refugee where I stand with the Midianites. I just want to belong somewhere. If we go back to this idea of a confession of a people pleaser, Understanding this isn't a complete list. Is there something that resonates with you? Wow, I always fall to peer pressure. I avoid people who don't like me. I cannot share the gospel for fear that I'll be rejected. I need validation. What is the root? What is the fear of others that you need to deal with? That you can talk to with people in your small group or your triad or a mature Christian leader that you have a relationship with? or can call one of us on staff. Like Moses, is it a desire to belong? Is it a longing for respect? Is it wanting to be accepted for the very first time? To bring a little bit of humor into this situation, I stumbled onto a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt that says, you wouldn't worry so much about others think of you if you realize how seldom they actually do. Finally, and this is the most important, remember God's glory. What is the first thing the Israelites do when they land on the other side of that Red Sea? They worship. We so quickly exchange the truth of God for the lie. What is the truth of God? You need to tell yourself right now. What is the truth of God? You need to tell yourself right now now. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Do you catch the difference? You're beating yourself up. Well, people might be doing this. Well, people might be thinking that. And you're just listening to all these negative voices. What happens if we start talking to ourselves, replacing the lie with the truth of God? What is the truth that you most need in your life right now? Is there a verse? Is there a promise that you can memorize, that you can put on a sticky tab and put it on your bathroom mirror to remind you every single day of God's goodness? What is the truth you need in your life right now? This isn't about behavioral modification. This is radical heart change that only God can do. You know, the Israelites were given this great sign. 
of the 10 plagues that God brought to Egypt, the Israelites were little more than passive observers for the first nine. Three sets of three to show God's strength, his power and his might. But that all changes between the ninth and the 10th plague. The Israelites were to take a lamb out of their own flock to sacrifice it. But that lamb had to be perfect, had to be spotless, had to be blameless, no injury, no maim upon it. And they would take the blood and they would put it on the door frames of their homes. Follow this command, said God. Believe in me and the angel of death will pass over your house. Failure to comply and your firstborn son will die. Even for the Hebrews, the glory of freedom still came with a heaviness and a weight of what took place. On this side of history, we still know that glory, that heaviness, that weight. Because God, who loves the world so much, gave up his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is by his body, which is broken, that we are healed. And by his blood, that we are saved. Let's take these together. Heavenly Father, forgive us when fear of man overrides fear of you. Help us instead, holy God, to recognize your weight, your heaviness, your majesty, so that we might fall so fully in awe of you. And that because of your glory, because of your majesty, because of your greatness, we would fear you and you alone and draw closer to you every single day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.